0: Well, hey, good morning. My name is Mark. I don't know what, what kind of weekend, what uh, kind of Sunday you're having. I'll give you a little idea of mine. I I was pulling into the parking lot this morning, and uh, the dash said, ding, 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 ding. Your, your air's going low on one of the tires. It's supposed to be at 35. It's at 25. And I turned the corner, and it went to 22, and it went to 20, and it was 18. And I finally parked when it hit 16, and I got out, and I could hear it going, Psss! Out of the back tire, so I got a fun day ahead of me, so uh, but maybe that 's a good backdrop for uh, this morning you know as we 're talking about this this whole series on who am I, which is really a look at worship and how the way that we see ourselves and the way that we see our God really fuels our worship it 's really the thing that compels it, and uh, the ability to to focus this morning that there may be a whole lot of things going on, a whole lot of things in your life, a whole lot of things in my life, but when we Gather in this place. That there's this, this thing that we just we must tell our God how much we love Him. We we can't we can't contain it, you know, and uh, and so really believing and hoping that these few weeks that we'll get a deeper understanding of who we are and of who God is, and thinking about that really uh, made me think back to the time that I uh, I set before an ordination council. Which sounds really official, and it wasn't near as official as what I thought it was. When you're ordained into the ministry, it just means that a group, a organized group of believers, they they're agreeing that hey, this, this person, yes, they they you know for vocational or some more significant you know official type ministry, we we say hey, we're we're gonna we're gonna ordain this guy. And when I went to sit before this group of guys in my the church I grew up in, and it was all of all of these you know the deacons and the elders and leaders and the pastor and and I was really nervous, like, you know, what questions, what questions are they going to ask me? And so I started, you know, is my theology, you know, where it needs to be? As I started looking back at all the memory verses that I had and trying to have them rehearsed so I could sound like I knew what I was talking about, you know? I mean, I had my guns loaded, but I, I was afraid, and I walked into that room, and I found out real quick that they didn't have much of a plan, you know? Nobody was really asking any questions, and they were just kind of catching up with me and finding out about what, it, what God had done, been doing in my life, and... And then it sat quiet for a minute, and then uh, a guy in the back raised his hand and, and asked the question, Mark, I've noticed that sometimes in worship, you raise your hands. Why do you do that? And you could feel the whole room just, He just asked that question. And kind of the backstory: story, the church was in a place uh, that most churches were, especially at that time, where... They had always had the organ and the piano and a choir and hymnals, and that's that's what it looked like on Sunday morning. And another group had come in for a short revival time, and, and they had drums and guitars, and they sang so- songs that sound a little bit different, and, you know, where the hymns were mainly, you know, a lot of theology, these hymns were a lot of prayers, and, and there were these differences, and the reaction of the people was different. There were those who were very demonstrative, and then this other group, they were very contemplative, and this group was throwing stones at this group, and this group was throwing stones at this group, and it's in the middle of all that chaos that here's this twenty-year-old guy walk in and he throws out the question. So I sat back and thought, hmm, how should I answer that question? Then I thought, all oh, this is running through my mind, what felt like an hour is probably like ten seconds. Well, I don't really know, but this is what I think. I said, you know, I I start to sing these songs, and and their prayers are declarations of who God is, and automatically, like this thing happens in me that I I want to surrender, you know, and this is the best thing I know of to say I surrender, and then there's also this thing that happens in my heart that I'm like a little boy that's running up to my daddy and. And I'm, I just want to reach as high as I can reach, knowing that he's with me. But there's something about it that feels like, you know, I just want him to pick me up and hold me. You know, that's what worship is. And that's, that's the place that I am. And I, I don't know. It just happens. And I guess that worked because they didn't ask me any more questions. And those guys were like, that sounds good. We're out of here. But, um, and you know, on that whole thing, it's really funny because, you know, one group thinks this group is right. And one group thinks this group is right. And in my opinion, they're both Right. If the heart is right If there's anything that's a theme of the scriptures It's that God looks at the heart In fact in 1 Samuel it says it exactly like that Man looks at the outward appearance But God is looking at the heart And so the question in worship is Not whether you stand or sit or raise your hands Or what songs we sing or what instruments are used The question is What's the condition of your heart? And that's the reason that it's so critical that we look at ourselves and that we look at God and really get our mind around who we are and who that he is. And to do that, we've been looking at Isaiah chapter 6, which is this encounter that Isaiah has in the presence of God. And we read it last week, and I'm going to read it again today, the full part, even though we're going to really focus on a few sections. And I'm going to do it the next two weeks, too. And I ask you just to read along with me and think to yourself what it would be like to be in this place with Isaiah. All right, so here we go. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. We're going to really focus on this, this part at the end, 6 and 7, where the seraphim takes a coal from the altar and touches his lips and says, your, uh, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. But a few things earlier in the passage that just kind of shed light to that, I believe, this morning. One, and honestly, this is a, a part that it would be real easy to read over, and when you visualize the scene, at least for me, to not think about it. But it says that the room was filled with smoke. It's not just a little bit of smoke; the room is filled with smoke. And then in, in today's part of it, you know that there's a coal and there's an altar, and the coal is taken from the altar. There is a fire. There are burning coals, and there is smoke filling this room. That's big. What what happens on an altar? Sacrifices are laid upon altars. Incense is burned at the altar, both these things before this holy God that represent something that's pleasing to him, a pleasing sacrifice, a pleasing aroma, and there's a visual, the room is filled with smoke representing those two things, and this coal from the altar representing this pleasing sacrifice and this this pleasing aroma. And then also, you know, the focus of last week has to kind of bleed over to this week, that that Isaiah's reaction is, woe is me. In the presence of this holy God, and how incredible he is, I realize my distance from him, and how much I'm unlike him. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And I think what's so big about that is that until we really get that, the second part of that where we can really understand your, you know, guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for? We don't, we don't get that. We don't embrace that. We don't live as people who see ourselves as redeemed if we don't really get the fact that we, we were ever broken. You know, that's where Jesus starts out when he's on the scene and he begins to teach. Right at the beginning in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, those first verses are called the Beatitudes. And this is where Jesus starts. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit the broken. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Beatitude 2, blessed are those who mourn. They're the ones that are comforted. Beatitude 3, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Beatitude 4, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So Jesus comes on the scene saying, hey, listen, there's, you don't get it until you get to this place that you realize and you mourn and you, you realize that you're broken and you hunger and you thirst for righteousness. And then, and then this incredible God through Jesus Christ answers those issues, but not until you realize it. So it's critical to get that. You know, this, this week I, I went with a friend to have some Vietnamese soup that you call pho? Fum, Phi? I've heard a lot of it. It's kind of like those Greek sandwiches that every time I go to order with somebody, I just wait to hear how, what they call it. Is it a hero, a gyro, a euro, a hero? I don't know. But anyway, I'm sure there's a correct name for both, so we'll call it fuss. So we sit down and I'm this bowl of soup, and also man, when they serve it, it's like the bowl's this big. and I'm just happy and I'm excited. And we sit down, and then right before I start to, to just dive into this soup, I jump up from the table. I run to the restroom, I turn on the faucet in the sink in, the, in this bathroom, and I am splashing this water in my face as hard as I can for about three minutes. I'm just covering my, it's getting on my shirt, it's getting on everything else. My face is, is doused. I, I try to wipe it off as best as I can. I go back to the table, and I sit down, and it is just really, really, really awkward. Oh, I forgot to tell you one part. Right before I went to the bathroom... Uh, I was going to add some sriracha to my soup. And I thought the the lid was down, but evidently it wasn't down all the way because I gave it a little shake, you know, just to kind of mix it up a little bit. And two drops flew out. One drop landed right here on my pocket, on my pants, and the second drop landed in my left eyeball. Now, I don't know if you've ever had sriracha in your eye. But it doesn't feel good. And my my friend that was here at first service, he said, "Man, that's an unfortunate place for that to go." (laughs) I said, "Yes, it is." So I run to the bathroom, man. I take a bath in the bathroom and try to clean it out for 30 more minutes. I'm trying to focus, but my eyes red and it's just burning and I'm crying and you know it looks like looks. Anybody watching this scene (laughs) was probably thinking, "Man, they just don't know what's going on with those guys, man. That dude's crying." You know what? Never in my life and hopefully never again, will I run to the bathroom and splash water on my face and take a shower in a restaurant bathroom. But that day, that's what you do. I had sriracha in my eye. If the water had been shut off at the restaurant that day, I would have been in big-time trouble. He told me he was worried we would have to go to the emergency room. What do you do with sriracha in your eye, man? Water made sense that day. And it made sense to throw it in my eye. Jesus makes sense if you get that you are in a desperate need, in a desperate place of brokenness. Woe is me. Woe is us. Now, bring the coal and put it on my lips, because I need it, you know? Same kind of, maybe in a different way, same kind of transition happened to me when we had a little girl. From the time I was little, I, I, I mean, no, no offense to anybody who likes pink, I just didn't like pink. I never have liked pink. We got married, and Terry wanted to put pink stuff in the house. And I was like, we ain't putting pink stuff in our house. Raising my boys, and I'm just like, no, man, you ain't getting those pink shoes. What are you talking about? We ain't doing that. And now I got a little girl, and all she wants is pink. And Daddy's like, hey, I was looking at Amazon yesterday for some pink uh, dolphin fin or mermaid fin that she can put on her feet because I know it will make her happy. We were looking together at a tutu to put on our teacup chihuahua that's pink yesterday. (laughs) What's happened to me? (laughs) Boy daddies don't do that, but now everything has changed. I'm a girl daddy, and I get it, and now pink makes sense. This gospel is not good news, and it does not make sense unless you're broken, unless you mourn, unless you hunger and thirst for righteousness. So we got to start there, and obviously that's where Isaiah starts. He gets it. Woe is me. And then what begins to happen? It's from this place of brokenness, that, uh, that we see verse six and seven. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched it to my mouth. And he said, "Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for." This altar, again, this pleasing sacrifice, this pleasing aroma, and the, the coal comes and it goes to his lips. Is it just me? I mean, we talk. You know, we'll talk sometime about where you would want to have a tattoo and not want to get a tattoo. What parts of your body are the most sensitive? Is this not? Is this not one of those parts? I don't want a a cold here. You know, maybe, maybe touch. You know, brand me somewhere else. But I'm not doing it on my lips. One of my saddest daddy moments, or worst daddy moments, when Caleb was little, he wanted a s'more. One day, we were at the grandparents' house, and he wanted a s'more, and we didn't have a campfire going, it was in the middle of the day, but they did have a gas stove, and we did have marshmallows. So I took a fork, and I put it in one of the marshmallows, and I held it over the gas stove. And the beauty of being able to control your heat in that environment, if anybody is a s'more connoisseur, is that you can toast that marshmallow to perfection. That nice, you know, tan toast around the outside, and where it's starting to blow up, but not quite. It's starting to fall off the fork. And right when I get it to that point, I'm like, Caleb, take it, dude, and I put it out, and he goes, yeah, and you just, you hear it sear his lips, you know, there's lines across his lips where that fork, you know, burned into his lips, I felt horrible, man, I mean, another thing about that is it it stayed there for, you know, several, several days, anyway, and ever since then, I thought, man, that's not the place you want to burn yourself or your children, for for that matter, (laughs) and it says that he gets burned on his lips, which is really curious, because earlier in the passage, what did he say? Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And where does the angel take the coal but to his lips? And there's something, you know, when you really think about, uh, about our lips and the reason that he's bringing attention to this place, You know, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, it's by your words that you will be condemned. Uh, there's also a, an incredible passage in James. I wanted to just read it for you real quick. Where it talks about the power of your tongue and of your lips, these, these things that might happen in our heart, this sin that is inside of us, it begins to manifest itself in a lot of ways. But one of the main ways that it manifests itself, right, is, is here in the, in the words that we say. And maybe in our cultural context, also in the things that we type, right? But the way that we communicate these things that are in our heart, they start to come out. Yesterday, at the end of the day, I had to, I had to apologize to Terry because I had several times that day, the things that were in my heart, I had, I had used my words to harm. And I knew, when I was saying it, I knew I was doing that. And I had to confess it. There's something about that. And, and James says it well, James chapter 3. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, uh, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile or sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a a restless evil full of deadly poison. (whistles) Bad news, man. But isn't it true? I mean, there's, there's so much that happens here. And so where does the, the sacrifice that was required, where does it come to, but right to the place of his biggest need, the place that he recognized his unrighteousness was found? This is what, this is what God does. And then he says, my guilt, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for, it's removed from you, it's paid for, it's covered over Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Is it just me or is that like really, really good news? Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. What do you do if you're Isaiah at this point? Is your life the same after that or does it pretty much look the same? Is your heart towards God different after that or is it the same? You're changed, right? You were never the same. Growing up, uh, there were these neighbors next door. It was this older couple, the Lipscombs, J.W. and Ethel. And both of them, really, I don't don't think they were any taller than this. And uh, they were just the sweetest people. I know you think you know somebody sweet, but I'll put J.W. and Ethel next to them any day. And she always had the best candy, too. And they were always so incredible, and I always felt like I could trust them, and this was just this guy that I admired. And I liked him. But then one day, found out that J.W. had uh, been a prisoner of war in World War II. And the story that I've learned since then, that he, he was, uh, in 1942, he was a, a guy that was driving a tank, it got hit with an artillery shell in North Africa, he survived it, but then he got captured by the Germans. They, uh, they took him and put him on this train with a lot of these other POWs, and they went through the Alps, and a, a lot of people on that train died because it was so cold on the back of that train, but he had two pairs of clothes on, so he survived it, and then he got to the, to the, camp, to the prison camp, and for three years he was in that place, and then he and a buddy escaped. And they spent several weeks hiding and and hiking and finding ways to avoid. And then he got to this river where he saw American forces on the other side. And he and his buddy swam the river and made it to the other side and were rescued. After I knew that, I never looked at J.W. the same. Because I'm really confident that J.W. didn't look at life the same after he got back from that war. Am I right? He was one that had looked at death in the face multiple times. And lived to tell the tale. He was rescued. He was redeemed. He was saved. And he was different. And he looked at life differently. That has to be something that happens to us. For somebody who really does realize their brokenness. And really sees what this Jesus has done. How he has been the pleasing sacrifice. The thing that we could never do for ourselves that he did. And that he would come to us and do that in our lives. Once you get that, everything's, everything's different. These aren't just songs you sing. This is this compelling thing that you must say. I love you. Thank you for doing the thing that I could never do. My guilt is taken away. My sin is atoned for. You know, that picture in Colossians chapter 2, this is just a a couple verses, and I think it it gives the clearest picture of as a a follower of Jesus who has turned from your sin and trusted in him, and you're in that, that place of redemption, Look at the way it's described. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature, But and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away, nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. That's your story. That's my story. You know, after the first service, there was a, a guy that was talking to me, saying that, you know, he's, he's wanting, he's made this decision to trust in Christ, and he's wanting to follow him in baptism. And he was asking, you know, what does that, what does that look like? Do I, I need to prepare my testimony to, to tell and explain what's happened? And I said, yeah, yo, you do. And then I said this, and I thought, that's really interesting. I said, you know, the beauty of baptism is that while some people, you know, they might want to stand in front of a group and speak, and others would be, you know, deathly afraid of that, this thing that Jesus has given us, it it gives the perfect picture of this thing that's happened in our heart that unites us all. We were dead in our sin and trespasses. And this Jesus... By his power has come and given us life. And while our stories differ in our past and the way that we came to know that, and even what our, our stories look like moving forward and following him, what happened in Jesus, what He did, we all share that. It's absolutely amazing. This weekend and I guess it's probably every weekend, but uh, there's the Rocky Marathon that's kicking, and you know, I, I like rocky movies a lot. And uh, so yesterday, you know, I'll catch, you know, 10 minutes of it here and 10 minutes of it there, and before we're going to bed, uh, Rocky 1 was on, which is by far the best and my favorite, and if you haven't seen it, shame on you. But uh, Rocky 1, uh, but there was this part that we were watching, and I hadn't really caught it before, and it's right, you know, it's building up pretty early in the movie, and up until now... Rocky has everything about his life is bad. I mean, he's, a, he's just a bum from the streets. Nothing's going his way. I mean, you're just watching. And you just feel sorry for the dude. He's alone. Everything has gone bad, you know? He got, got kicked out of the gym that he was working out in. Everything is, everything is bad. And then the, the champion of the world has decided that he's going to give a no-name boxer a chance. And he chooses the Italian Stallion. And so the promoter calls Rocky to his office to, to tell him about that. And Rocky just assumes that he's going and he's going to be asked to be one of Apollo's, you know, uh, dummies, just one of his sparring partners. And so he sits down and he says, yeah, I would love to be a sparring partner. You know, that'd be incredible. That'd be a huge step up for him. You know, I'd get to spar with a champ. And, and the promoter says, oh, Rocky, I haven't called you here to be a sparring partner. The champ wants to give you a shot at the belt. I mean, you get to fight him, and you could be the champion of the world. You know what Rocky says? No, 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 no. I, I, I'm not going to do that. I, I'm not. I'm not good enough for that. I'm not. No, no. I, that would just be a joke because I can't. I can't get in the ring with the with that guy. You know. And, and the promoters are you crazy, man? Do you realize the opportunity that's in front of you? Anybody would want this, and you've been given this chance. He's chosen you. And while I'm sitting there thinking, man, why would he say no? You know, it seems like that's what we do with with this thing a whole lot of the time, you know? Jesus has done this thing. We deserve this. We deserve none of this grace and mercy and love that God wants to give us. But he's done it by his power. It's there for us to receive and embrace and live in and walk in. It's almost like we say, but it's just too much. I don't deserve it. You're right, we don't. But he's lavished it upon us. His grace and mercy is radical. It's extravagant. And it doesn't make any sense. So just accept it. Because he wants to pour it out on you. And when you receive that, what do you do? Well, you can't help but worship. When we sing these songs, it's a knee-jerk reaction to then sing out to him. Maybe your hands shoot in the air. Maybe you sit in your seat and you think more deeply about who he is and what he's done. I don't know what your heart compels your body to do. But I know this. If you've seen how broken you are and you've seen how incredible he is and you've given your life over to him, there's only one right reaction, and that's, my God, I love you. My Jesus, thank you. And when we do that together, something incredible happens in this place. And so we've set aside these, these weeks where we've got three songs at the end and, and then we normally just have two at the end, but we set a little extra time aside so maybe you can think a little bit more deeply about it. Maybe you can, you can sing a little louder. Maybe God can, can do that thing in your heart that, uh, that He really has been wanting to do, but you haven't stopped long enough to let Him. So let me pray that He would this morning. Father, we... Are really uh, amazed and uh, astounded by the thought of what it would look like, what it would mean to be in your presence and while it 's very true that it would uh, we would shake in reverent fear there's also this reality that that you are a God of love and that you would meet us in that place. You have met us in that place and, and done the unthinkable. And Father, we worship you today. We say that we love you. And I pray that in these next few minutes that you would begin a fresh work in our hearts. We love you. Amen.